Well, good morning, folks. Well, a lot has happened since the last time I spoke. I started a new job. Uh, I experienced one of the uh, plagues of Exodus. We had a massive hailstorm that descended upon our house last week. So every every yard in our neighborhood has a roofing sign. I mean, they descended on us like vultures on a roadkill within minutes. It was crazy. And then about a week ago, I had the most interesting conversation, uh, pretty in-depth conversation that I just wanted to take. You know, as a matter of fact, somebody actually took a picture of the conversation we had I wanted to share with you. Now you can see the the intensity because the conversation went something like this. She was just enthralled with all that I was saying. And within seconds when that picture was taken, she was sound asleep. So this is Harper Eileen Gone. She was born May 15th. This is our first grandchild, granddaughter. Um, and we will have another one in August with my son up in Colorado. So we're very excited about that. So yeah, it's... You know, and, and I never knew this. It was such, everybody asked me, well, what are you going to be called? You know, I didn't know that was such a thing. So my wife will be called Grandma or Grammy, and I will be called Pop because uh, my only grandfather I ever knew it was Pop, and we had a really special relationship, and I thought to honor him, I just want to be called Pop. So anyway, so that's, that's the news. So uh, have you ever stopped to think about how much of our conversations with family and friends who may be separated by years and miles, that in those conversations there tends to be a lot of reporting? Now, if there's any amount of time since you last spoke uh, or saw your friends, the initial part of the conversation, in fact, maybe the whole time is spent on reporting back to each other. Well, you know the drill. How are you doing? Which is really a loaded, open-ended question. And without being more specific, you can answer that question by regarding your health, your job, your retirement, your activities, travels, and on and on and on. How is your family? You talk about your children, their activities, interests, and of course, down in my case, how are the grandchildren? And how many of you, how often they call, how many you have, how often they call, how are you spoiling them? You know, what are they into? You know, and I grew up, where I grew up in the, in the South, Tennessee, Alabama area, one of the topics of conversation that I always heard my mother talk about with her mother was, well, how's the weather? And I used to think, you haven't talked to each other in weeks and you want to know if it's been raining? Well, in the last few years, I reconnected with uh, my best friend that I've known since the sixth grade. And, and in those initials, initial conversations, we... We had an extensive amount of reporting, catching up on each other after all these years, and we both have children, and they're grown, and what are they doing, and all that. And so we covered all those questions in depth, except for the weather. And then when I'd get off the phone, I would turn to report to Sandy, because she would always ask about the report. She said, well, how's Barry doing? And I would give the assessment based upon the findings gleaned in my reporting. 
So in the important relationships in our lives, once we get past the superficial questions and the pat answers, and we probe a little deeper and listen for indicators that reveal more accurately the answer to questions like, how are you doing, really? And how, how is your family really doing these days? It's only when you get to that level, when you get beyond the knee-jerk responses like, oh, I'm fine. Oh, yeah, the kids are good. That you really begin to understand the health or status of the other person. And when you get to that level of understanding, that's when you know how to pray for the person and how to give a more accurate assessment when you're asked by somebody else, how's that person doing? Well, you know, some of Paul's letters are based upon reports gained from his associates when they visited those churches he planted. The specifics of the report he was given determine how he would extol them or admonish them, how he would pray for them, what he would pray for, and the instructions he would provide for them in the process. For example, in his letter to the Corinthians, the report was a bit troublesome based on what he was told in a report given him. Does this sound... It's a weird sound coming out. I just hear a little bit of an echo. So in that, he, re, he uh, addressed various problems. Uh, in his letter to the Galatians, you know, after his signature greeting of, hi, it's Paul, grace and peace to you. Then he gets right to the point. How have you so quickly abandoned the gospel of grace for a false gospel? I always find that somewhat amusing. The epistle we're studying this summer is based on a report brought back to Paul from Timothy. And after sending Timothy there to strengthen and encourage them in the face of such affliction, Paul notes in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy has brought us good news of your faith in love. In other words, he gave Paul a good report about the believers in Thessalonica. And based on the specifics of that report, Paul pens this letter. Now, Unlike some of Paul's letters, some that we just mentioned, there wasn't any admonishment for their sinful behavior. No factions within their group that needed resolution. He emphasized godly character in their sanctification in contrast to the pagan culture that they were surrounded by and provided some instruction about the coming of the Lord to sustain their steadfast hope in his return. So in this first chapter, there's a positive assessment from Timothy's report on the health of the young church in Thessalonica. Like all of Paul's letters, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the letters were timely for the current situation and they're timeless for our instruction today. So as we study this chapter, suppose you're on the phone with a friend or a family member and the subject turns to the church you attend or they attend and you ask, how's your church doing? What will you base your assessment on and what will be the substance of your report to someone else based on the number of people, type of activities, programs offered, how well they like the pastor, size of the new building, color of the carpet, whether the, church, the choir wears robes or not. We can surmise from this chapter that in effect, Paul asked questions to Timothy to find out an answer. And so the questions he asked is, how's the church in Thessalonica? And so there, in his response, in this letter, we find four indications. In this chapter in particular, we find four indications, indicators of a healthy church. Now, these are indicators that really should be true of any church that honors Jesus Christ as Lord. And it certainly should be how we assess the health of this church. So let's take a look at the first chapter. 
Paul and Silvanus, well, let's read it together. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Then in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So after his introduction from verse 2 through the end of verse 5 is one long sentence. And the verb driving that sentence is give thanks. So what follows then are the reasons for his thanksgiving. So what did he pray for? For what was he thankful? Well, just as we read in the text, the first indication or indicator of this healthy church, as Timothy reported, for Paul, for which Paul gives thanks, is their outward manifestation of the gospel. Now you'll notice three words that Paul often stresses to his readers in terms of the qualities that are essential to the life of a believer. That's faith, hope, and love. We see that on plaques everywhere. In fact, this is the first time in Paul's letters that, those, that this well-known triad appears. But here, the emphasis is on those, what those qualities produce in the life of a believer. And they're not passive qualities. For example, the first one that he talks about is their work of faith. Now, this is not work for faith. Paul is clear about that throughout his teaching. This is work that inspires and produces. It's work that springs from and is motivated by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 2, 8 through 10 makes this quite clear. Uh, this is consistent with what James taught in his letter when he contrasted living faith with dead faith. And this work of faith is the outgrowth of the new creature we've become in Christ. Service to a living and true God is expressed through service to his people, to his church. And it's really inconceivable how anyone can claim to know the one true God and lack any visible expression of work that stems from faith in him. Next, he gives thanks for their labor of love. Now, these are not small services we give without hope of reward. The word expresses the cost of, the love, of their love, and that's really where the emphasis is. It's not about the result or with or without visible success. They have labored to the point of weariness. D. Edmund Hebert put it this way. The stress in the word labor is on the cost, the exertion, fatigue, and exhaustion that it entails. Labor implies toil that is strenuous 
and sweat producing. This is distinctively Christian love. The love which springs from an unconquerable goodwill and persistent desire for the welfare of the one loved. So the word love here is agape, the highest form of love, of selfless love that considers the object which is valuable and highly esteemed. So now these two words Paul uses describe visible evidence of their genuine faith, work and labor. And when Timothy paid them a visit, he saw a church in action, not just about talk. He saw genuine toilsome action that was an expression of their transformed lives. And then next, he gives thanks for their steadfastness of hope. Now, if you read this verse in multiple translations, you'll find three different words that are often used to translate this. In, here in the NASB in the Legacy Standard, uh, the Greek word that Paul uses is translated steadfastness. The King James translates it patience. And in the NIV, the word is endurance. The Greek word is used 31 times in the New Testament. And if you track the word in these references in the NASB, it varies between these three English words with the addition of perseverance. The different English words are chosen based on the context. But what is the consistent meaning of this word? Well, again, I like the way Heber describes this word. And I'll quote him a few times in this. He's really a great commentator. He describes this word which helps us get beyond a passive sense of the word patience as we commonly think of it. In his commentary, he says, it's not a quiet resignation which passively endures the burdens heaped upon it, but rather it is that combination of heroic endurance and manly constancy that courageously faced the various obstacles, trials, and persecutions which may befall the believer in his conflict with the inward and outward world. Now you can picture a person whose feet is firmly planted on the ground with a raging windstorm beating him head on, trying to knock him off his feet. But he doesn't budge and he remains firm in spite of fierce opposition. When I was a kid, I used to go visit my grandparents in Gulf Shores, Alabama. And I used to love to stand right at the edge of the shore in the Gulf when the water would come up and then rush back it would just kind of erode around me and I would start to sink in, but it would pull, it would try, have a tendency to pull me into it. So I would just lock down in, in steadfastness so that I wouldn't be budged or wouldn't be moved by it. That's the idea, the steadfastness of hope. There's nothing that's going to shake us. The church in Thessalonica was facing increasing opposition that was an assault on their newfound faith and could erode their belief in the one true God. Their hope stands in contrast to the hopelessness they experienced when steeped in pagan, idolatrous worship. So we know, as we've heard Pastor Tom explain many times, biblical hope is based on that which is completely certain. It is confidence in what God has said and what he will do. It's never, ever wishful thinking. The Thessalonians were firmly rooted in their hope for what God has promised. So the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. That's what Timothy reported back to Paul. Well, how did he determine this, that this was true of this church? Did he take a poll? Did he hand out a survey and ask them to rank their virtues on a scale of one to five? No, work, labor, and steadfastness or something that can be seen in action. They're action words that describe visible activity. 
It's evidence of true conversion, which really leads us to the next point. And that next point is he was confident and gave thanks for their inward transformation by the gospel. Now, there's a lot here to unpack, and we'll try to cover it as much as we can. In verse 4, as his reasons for thankfulness unfolds, he adds this statement. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, this particular noun used to describe them, translated choice, is a term that denotes the act of picking out or choosing someone or selection of some from among others who are not selected. This is the noun form of the word we translate as elect. And the particular usage of this term occurs six times in the New Testament. It's, it's the noun form. One commentator explains it this way. It appears, it always appears to denote an act of divine selection taking a place upon human objects so as to bring them into special and saving relations with God. Now, last week, Lance introduced this epistle, and he gave this thorough backstory on the Apostle Paul, and he mentioned his dramatic conversion experience on the road to Damascus, of which we're all familiar with. When the Lord spoke to Ananias in a vision, he instructed him to go meet Paul, or Saul at the time, and lay hands on him to bring back his eyesight. Now, of course, based on what they knew of Saul, based on his reputation, that was a bit frightening. I mean, you can't blame Ananias' hesitancy knowing that Saul was notorious for his rage against Christians. But the Lord assured him he was in control. And notice what he says in Acts 9.15. He said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Exact same word. This is the same Greek word Paul used to describe the believers at the church in Thessalonica. Paul doesn't elaborate on this term like he did like he does in the first chapter of Ephesians. So it's possible or likely he covered this doctrine of election with them while he was teaching there. It's just sanctified imagination. And most commentators believe that he actually stayed in Thessalonica longer than three Sabbaths. Uh, that he taught in the synagogue due to the fact that he was engaged in manual labor to support his ministry, as it, he mentions in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, and also in 2 Thessalonians 3, 8. And that on two separate occasions, the church at Philippi, which was 68 miles away, sent financial support. That's in a three-week span of time, that would be probably not likely. So he was there for a longer period of time to teach them about Christianity and maybe including this. So with that sanctified imagination, on three notable occasions in Paul's ministry, he recalls his conversion experience that pinpoints the time when he knew he was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And I think it's highly possible that during his ministry there with these new Gentile converts and some of the Jewish converts, he shared his own personal experience from the time when he realized that he was chosen by God, as they were. And although Paul's conversion experience was quite dramatic, God's choosing of this converts in Thessalonica, God's choosing of those of us who are believers is no less significant and no less amazing. Now, let's suffice it to say that throughout Scripture, God has revealed himself as an infinitely righteous, just, and holy God. And we've been given ample evidence that he is a loving, merciful God and not a severe tyrant in his selection. 
The truth of divine election is a doctrine that is celebrated by believers who are humbled by the wonder of an undeserved choice. Um, I really like this statement by John Stott when he expressed the doctrine of election. He said, the topic of election, now listen to this, is nearly always introduced for a practical purpose in order to foster assurance, not presumption, holiness, not moral apathy, humility, not pride, and witness, not lazy selfishness. What I like about that statement is that the emphasis on the doctrine of election is how this truth affects us when we realize the significance of his choosing you and me, which propels us to worship, obedience, and evangelism. Now, there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on here too before we get into some of the other parts of this. Not only does he recognize that they are chosen like he is, he uses the endearing term brethren here when addressing them. Now, this reference indicates his strong connection to this body of believers. In all of his epistles, he uses that term brethren 60 times. In his two relatively brief letters to the Thessalonians, he uses that term 14 times in the first letter and seven times in the second. I think that signifies that he had a real bond with these believers in Thessalonica. And consider the significance of this once proud Pharisee who disdained any Gentile and even persecuted Christians, whether they were converted Jews or Gentile believers. And now through the common bond they share in Christ, all that hatred, all that animosity is gone. There's a loving brotherhood that's shared, a fond affection. The term brethren was not a new expression among the early church. It was a it was also common in Jewish usage, a term of address for fellow Jews. But because of the rich nature of the brotherhood experience in the church, the, the term developed a warm and vital connotation for believers. It testified to their sense of vital oneness, which they found through their common bond and, and common faith in Jesus Christ. So here's a good question as we talk about this doctrine. How could Paul be so confident that these Thessalonian believers were truly chosen by God. I mean, what is the confirmation of their election and their inward transformation from the gospel for which he gave thanks? Well, that confirmation is based not only on the visible manifestation we discussed earlier, but also how the gospel came to them. And he links this statement about their election with the conjunction for, which can also be tra translated because or since. Because the gospel came to them in four distinct ways, which validates that inward transformation. Well, we talked about that one, so sorry, I'm a little behind here. It's marked by choice, but it also came in words. He starts off saying, it did not come by words only, but it did first come by words. The verbal preaching of the gospel Paul's word choice emphasizes the message of the gospel, not their proclamation. The NASB translates this correctly. Our gospel came to you. The word translated gospel is euangelion, the good news. That's the word we use for the gospel, a reward of good tidings. If he had used the word kergma or kerugma, that's translated proclamation, and the emphasis would have been on their proclamation, but it's really the emphasis is on the message. 
the words. And, and it's not the manner of their communication, but here is the convincing in the message. It was based on, it's not, it wasn't based on eloquence, oratory skills, or marketing principles. They preach the word of God in a hostile environment. The word of God is what convinced some in the Jewish community and many of the idol-worshiping pagan Gentiles. Throughout the New Testament, it is the preaching of the gospel, the word of God by which the gospel was declared and spread. In the narrative account of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica that we talked a lot about last week in Acts 17, it says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The faith that was evident in the church at Thessalonica came as a result of hearing of the word of God. But he did say it was not just words. What else did he say? He said it came in power. It's not that it just tells of power, though that is true. But when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is preached, God is there and God is working. The gospel is power. Whenever the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, there is power involved. Not simply exhortation, but power. Paul and his companions were well aware of the power that was present in their teaching. And then he says, it came in the Holy Spirit. The source of the power is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit of God leading them, excuse me, into the salvation God has prepared for them. The messengers, apart from the message, would have been totally powerless to achieve such a result. There was a supernatural power behind their words, producing spiritual persuasiveness and penetrating conviction. That should be an encouragement to all of us in our outreach efforts to the lost. It's his power. It's his word. It's the Holy Spirit that brings the increase. It's not up to me. It's not based on how much I know or how clever I am in my explanation. It's based upon preaching the word, being faithful to do that, and depending upon the power and the Holy Spirit to do that. And it's only by the penetrating power of the Holy Spirit that people are converted from death to life. Paul clarified this in his letter to the Corinthians where he, was, where he was located when he wrote the epistle we're studying. To them, he said, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith will not rest on the wisdom of men, but on what? The power of God. That's 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> it is the power of the Holy Spirit that changes lives from the inside out. It's not politics, which distinguishes Christianity from a political movement? You know, how else could a movement that faced such adversity from the very beginning, how could it last? How could it survive unless there was the divine element sustaining the converts through such adverse circumstances? I've always found it striking that when confronted on the road to Damascus, what were the first words out of Paul's mouth? when he was blinded on that road. What were the very first words he said? Lord, what would you have me to do? The first word was Lord. He recognized him as Lord. He was changed instantly because there was power at work there. Remember, you know, when he said that, he was on his way to the synagogue in Damascus with letters of authorization from the high priest to capture, bound, and bring Christians back to Jerusalem for judgment and punishment. He was on a mission 
a mission diametrically opposed to the spread of the gospel with the intent for the annihilation of the gospel. And here's a clear example of radical repentance. He turned from his reliance on the law as a means of righteousness, but he turned also from the wretched direction of his life's focus and mission. And then he also says that gospel, that ministry there came with full conviction. You don't have to read far into Paul's letters to get a sense of the intense conviction or full assurance he had regarding the truth and the power of the gospel message he preached. That, that comes out loud and clear in all of his writings. So here at the end of the descriptions of the character of his preaching and the environment which he preached, knowing the words of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, he states that he's fully aware and fully assured of the truthfulness and the urgency of the message. And all this coupled with the outward manifestation of the new life in Christ mentioned earlier. It was all a confirmation of their election and assurance of their salvation. I like Leon Morris the way he put it. He says, Paul's primary meaning is the assurance that the Spirit gave to the preachers. For Paul is dealing with the way he and his companions came to know the election of the Thessalonians. They had the assurance in their own hearts that as they were preaching, the power of God was at work. The Spirit was working a work of grace. And then he adds this additional phrase at the end of this long sentence. He says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. This was a testimony to their character that was consistent with their message. They didn't say one thing and live another. They demonstrated in character and approach the genuine nature of the message that they were preaching. The power inherent in the gospel message and the work of the Holy Spirit was the same that was at work in this ministry team. There was no reason for skepticism on the part of the Thessalonians uh, based on what they observed in the life of Paul and his team. You know, that really should be a lesson to all of us. Is the public display of our words, our attitudes, our actions, are those consistent with the transforming power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit work in us? If not, our outreach efforts will likely fall flat and bring reproach to the name of Christ whom we're proclaiming. Now, there's more. The next indicator of a healthy church that he outlines is their genuine imitation of their mentors. I find this quite interesting. In his thankfulness for them and his confirmation that they are truly part of God's elect, he adds this layer. They are imitators. They're imitators of their human leaders and they're imitators of their saving Lord. Now, the Greek word gives us our English word for mimic. That's the word that's used here. This is an interesting word. It basically means to do what is seen to be done by someone else. In classical Greek literature, Aristotle used this word to explain the beginnings of human culture when men took animals as their examples and learned from their behaviors. For example, they learned weaving and sewing from observing spiders spinning their webs, and they mimic their actions. Basic construction techniques were learned from watching birds build their nest. Now, whether or not that is true in terms of the emergence of human culture, the concept is clear. 
We learn and adopt behaviors based on what we observe and imitate from others. But mimicry here goes far deeper than merely copying the behaviors of someone else, much like what an actor does when portraying someone in a biopic presentation. This is not artificial imitation. Rooted in their conversion, in their election, as Paul has stressed, is the supernatural inward transformation and subsequent mimicry of both their spiritual leaders and of Christ. So he first says, you also became imitators of, or, of us. Now, the order that Paul lists here is no accident. Remember the background and the context of this epistle? The first introduction of the gospel to Europe occurred when Paul and team arrived in Philippi. After his ministry there, the second place that he went was here in Thessalonica. And after his ministry there, well, Paul, uh, James Moffat, the great Scottish theologian, noted that Paul was the first Christian the Thessalonians had ever seen. He and his friends practically represented the Christian faith. Now, I'm not sure why he said practically, because if they were the first Christians that they ever met, they would be the first representations of the Christian faith. Not only were they the first Christians they met, this is the first letter they received was one of the earliest, if not the first letter that Paul ever wrote. So this is the first New Testament scripture they had to read and study. So the life example of Paul and his companions was a critical component to their growth as new believers. This is what a believer looks like. This is what a believer says. This is what a believer acts like, does, and, and thinks like, and believes. Look at us. Living in a pagan, saturated culture, until Paul and team showed up, they had no models for the Christian life. Their transformation in such a short time was a genuine example of this new life in Christ. And several times in his writings to churches, to the churches he planted, he encouraged them to imitate him. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He said that to the believers in Corinth and Philippi. And this wasn't unique to Paul. And the writer of Hebrews in 13.7, notice I said not Paul. The writer of Hebrews says, call on his listeners to imitate the faith of those who led them. Paul could only point to himself as an example as he was devoting, as he was devoted to imitating Christ. It's not because he thought of himself more highly than he should, but he was that example of living out the Christian life. Imitation or mimicry is not a foreign concept to us. Now, we imitate those we respect. We mimic those we perceive to excel in areas or aspire to. It's only natural. It's smart. But there is a two-sided challenge for us as believers in terms of this mimicry. First, who are we imitating? Now that we have the completed canon of Scripture, that gives us the four accounts of the life of Christ and all the epistles are written to the church for our instructions, we can and must imitate Christ. He is our pattern. If we take our eyes off him, we should heed the charge that the apostle John stressed in his third epistle when he said in verse 11, beloved, do not imitate, it's the same word here, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. The other side of that challenge is, what are we modeling? What pattern are we demonstrating to those who look at us as representatives of Jesus Christ? 
You know, I've got a neighbor, a next door neighbor that uh, they're from India and they have the little India the things up on their door post and uh, we've gotten to know each other and I'm, and I'm trying to just basically be a good neighbor and, and, op- and look for opportunities to really share Christ with them. Uh, so there's been some things we've been able to do and they're very appreciative. That's demonstrating Christ, but it goes beyond that. Maybe some of you remember a TV commercial years ago. I, I, I know some of you will remember this. There's other ones you're going to have a clue what I'm talking about. I mean, this was years ago, as in 1967. Oh, I heard some groans. In this commercial, there was a montage with scenes of a dad and his young son. And uh, the voiceover narrator said, like father, like son. Nobody's going, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Whatever the dad did, the son would do the same. The dad picks up a rock and throws it into the woods as they walk down a dirt road. Little, little boy, he's, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper. He picks up a rock, throws it in the woods too. They're driving down the road in a convertible, and the dad's driving. The little boy's sitting there, and he's got like a little play steering wheel, and the dad goes like this. You know what that is? A left turn signal. Now, we don't do that anymore. We put our signal on. If you're like me, I put my signal on and drive down a road for miles forgetting that it's still blinking. <laughs> and so the son kind of, kind of does the same thing. Uh, and, then, and then there's a point where they're sitting under a tree. Dad reaches in his pocket and pulls out a pack of cigarettes. I see a couple of nods. You remember this. Pulls out a cigarette, lights it up. Little boy looks over and picks up the pack and starts kind of examining it. And then the narrator comes back and says, like father, like son. So, of course, the point was more about the harmful effects of smoking, but the commercial stressed the dark side of imitation. Children learn by imitating their parents. Other people learn how to live the Christian life by watching those who confess Christ and believe him and follow him. So it's no big news flash that children, of course, will pick up patterns from their parents during their impressional years as they grow up. But when does that stop? Does it stop when they leave home? How many of you have adult children that live outside your home? Yeah, a lot of you do. I do. And as parents of children of any age, as grandparents of children today, We are always or should be further down the road in our sanctification than all of them setting a pattern, good or bad, of how we react to and respond to the challenges thrown at us in our culture at all stages in life. We're always just down the road. How are we dealing with that? And what are we presenting so that they can imitate? So what is our lifestyle, our attitudes, our conversations, our reactions to, and interactions with a pagan culture demonstrate about our faith and trust in the sovereignty of God. And what pattern of Christ's likeness do we demonstrate that is worthy of mimicry? So as we read through this chapter, Paul's thankfulness for the church in Thessalonica is most definitely an indication of the health of the church, but also a testimony to the spiritual leader of these missionaries. We too should be an imitator of them and of Christ. Now the last few verses of this chapter highlights another indicator of this healthiness of the, this healthy church and that is their expanding reputation across the area <clears throat> their reputation as a growing chosen body of believers in a relatively short period of time was already being talked about 
in Macedonia and Achaia. As noted in verse 7, their reputation was noted, first of all, in their reception of the word of God. Paul says they received the word in much tribulation. If you're here last week, you remember that Paul's ministry there caused quite an uproar in the city. The Jewish leaders were not very receptive to his message of Jesus as the Messiah, even though Paul demonstrated that truth throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Especially, they were upset when some of the Jews were convinced of what he was saying. So as it says in Acts 17, they gathered some, and it says, wicked men, formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. And right from the very beginning of their ministry, there was this extreme hostility toward his, this Christian ministry. The word translated tribulation is not a word meaning mild discomfort. Quite the opposite. It signifies great difficulty. Early Greek writers used the word describing severe pressure and affliction. It is a testimony to their genuine response to the gospel, as Paul has stressed in his opening letter, that in the midst of this great antagonism toward the message of the gospel, they receive truth rather than run from it to avoid persecution and rejection. They learned from the very beginning that to follow Christ, there was a price to be paid. Now, picture this. Remember, Paul and his team showed up in Thessalonica after spending time in Philippi where they were beaten and thrown into jail. And think about the timing. This beating that they had was no simple slap on the wrist. After the beating, they were immediately tossed into jail. And the conditions of those jails were not like what you might see in our country. Not that I've ever been in one. But they're not comfortable climate controlled. They throw them in jail with all these battered bruises and bleeding and so forth. And then after the jailer came to Christ, it says he washed their wounds and then they baptized him. The very next day, the very next day after the beating, the magistrates learned of their Roman citizenship. They sent them on their way. And while they were still nursing their wounds from the beating, they embarked on a 68-mile journey to Thessalonica by foot. So you think about this. You have these beaten, travel-weary missionaries enter your town with a message of salvation in stark contrast to the teaching in the synagogue and contrary to the pagan religions rampant in the area. And these battle-scarred men are urging you, urging them to turn to Christ. And they did. In spite of the culture in which they live, in much tribulation, they responded to the message and were transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would say that's pretty noteworthy. If you look at these guys all beaten and bothered, it wasn't a real glamorous appeal there, but it was the truth and the power of the gospel that convinced them. It wasn't viewed as some new popular fad that everybody wanted to jump on board and be part of the in crowd. There was a price to be paid for their beliefs, and they willingly paid it. So their reputation also spread about their turning away from false gods. The word turning here is used throughout the New Testament depicting what happens in, con in conversion. There's always a turning away from something to Christ. In Acts chapter 9, verse 35, Peter was ministering in the town of Luda and after, and I wrote these words out phonetically so I could say them right, Aeneas was healed, all the people there turned to the Lord. 
In Acts 11.21, when the word was preached in Antioch, it says they turned to the Lord. There is no conversion if there isn't a turning away from sin, from self, from idols, or anything in which a person trusts, and a subsequent turning to the Lord. Here, they turned away from pagan gods to the one true God. Pagan worship was such a part of their culture that turning away from idols to the one true God was so significant that it was being talked about in areas way outside of their own city. And for their reputation to spread in surrounding areas, regardless, um, regarding their turning away from idols and the associated worship practices linked to these idols, it had to be a significant event. There was bondage, fear, and demonic activity involved in much of the idol worship of the day. And news of this group of believers breaking free from that bondage was quite noteworthy. Now, here's a, uh, a fascinating fact about the spread of their reputation. We started this lesson noting that Paul was responding to a report brought back to him from Timothy. And that report was largely the basis of the content shared in this letter in the first chapter. But there are two remarkable statements that we should not miss here. We talked about how Paul noted that they became imitators of his team and of Christ. But now look at verse 7. In the transformation demonstrated in them in, following, in them following their conversion, as they imitated the missionaries and Christ, they in turn became an example to believers outside their area. The word example is the same Greek word used in Philippians 3.17 that's translated pattern. He says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Years ago, I was graduating, as I was graduating from Bible college, I engaged in a lot of conversations about the church and the changes that were emerging. I was living in the Chicago area and began to hear about this church in the northwest suburbs, suburbs called Willow Creek Community Church, which was kind of launched a lot of the seeker-style church ministries. I read a book back in those days about another church in the Chicago area called Circle Church that was this multi-ethnic, multicultural church that was attempting through various styles and art forms to appeal to all people according to their cultural heritage. And then there was the church growth movement with its seminars and workshops that stressed that the maximum growth potential was achieved by selecting a narrowly defined demographic and target them with a specific teaching and worshiping style. So if you didn't like that type of music, you were out of luck because they were building it around a specific target group. And then there were other groups at the same time, I remember, who just piously stated, we just want to be a New Testament church. To which Warren Wiersbe responded, well, which one? The church at Corinth? Galatia? Laodicea? Which one is it? So what should be our pattern? Well, as we read through the whole New Testament, we can piece together what the church should be and do. But the best place to start is right here in Thessalonica. Because this is the only time in all of Paul's letters where he speaks of a church as a pattern to other believers. That's quite a statement. You know, I wish we had time to explore that in depth, what that pattern looked like in terms of how they turned their back on the culture, the nature of the idols that they were rejecting in their teaching, the false teaching of the Jews, 
and the implications of their turning to Christ. Suffice it to say that this work of God in the city of Thessalonica caused such a stir that the word spread far and wide. Now, here's another fascinating point from this text regarding their reputation. After he tells them they have become an example to all believers, he says this in verses 8 and 9. For the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia, Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God is gone. Listen to this. So that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So in his ministry travels, before he gets the chance to tell them about this model church, it's like they stop them. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, we heard about them. What amazing work the Holy Spirit has done in their lives. So it wasn't just Timothy he was hearing reports about them. Others were telling about the changed lives. How is this possible? You know, this isn't in the day when moments after an event occurs, you pop open Twitter or whatever social media and you can see what just happened or as it's happening. This city was situated along, and I think I'm saying this right, the Ignatian Way, a major east West Highway linking Rome with the eastern regions of the empire. There was attractive commerce in the city, so people would come and go through the city frequently. The impact of Paul's ministries, as we've noted today, created such notice that the word spread as people came and went through the city. So it appears that it was such a phenomenon, the subject came up in their conversations throughout the region. Hey, did you hear about what's going on in Thessalonica? The devoted church were known for the reception of the word of God, their turning away from idols, and finally, their anticipation of Christ's return. Now, the return of Christ is a major theme in both of Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians, and we'll look at that quite a bit. This word translated, the word translated coming, that you'll see, parousia, is mentioned seven times in these epistles. And there's a reference to Christ's return in every chapter in 1 Thessalonians. So it's a topic you're going to hear a lot about this summer as we go through this. The believers at the church were waiting for his return. This is the only time in the New Testament the word wait is used. It means one whose coming is expected, perhaps with the added idea of patience and confidence. And this, again, is one of those identifying marks of their reputation that spread throughout the region. Christ's return was eagerly awaited. For this to be said about them, it was something that they talked about and demonstrated in the way they lived. You know, in this postmodern, post-Christian age in which we live that is marked by skepticism, scorn, increasing antagonism toward Christianity, to hear the church talk about the return of Christ will strike some as odd, bizarre, or downright kooky. And I would suspect that might be a similar reaction that Noah witnessed when he told people that the earth would be flooded by coming rains, rain that had never occurred on the earth up to that point. But these believers in Thessalonica spoke of his return with confidence, regardless of the scorn and the ridicule. You know, all churches would do well to learn from the believers in Thessalonica. What strikes me about 
that report that Timothy brought back and the reputation that spread throughout the area was not isolated to a single person, such as a pastor or elder or some unique individual in the church. His thankfulness was a broad, sweeping acknowledgement of the whole church. And it was character-focused, indications of genuine conversion and sanctification that you would expect from the elect of God. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think there's a lot we could extract from it. As you read through this chapter, and I hope you'll review this again and again as we study this epistle, I trust you'll read through it and ask this question. Does my work of faith, my labor of love, and steadfastness of hope contribute to the reputation of a healthy church? The reputation of this church. When people talk about Countryside Bible Church, do they only talk about the great teaching that goes on there and how the church is growing? Do they talk about the people that demonstrate, that model those who are imitating Christ? We're part of that. All of us are. Secondly, is there a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in each of us conforming us into the image of Christ as we imitate him? Is there a sense of power as we share the gospel of the Holy Spirit at work? And finally, you know, our circumstances may be different than the believers in the first century in Thessalonica, but we do not live in ever-increasing, but we do live, I'm sorry, we do live in ever-increasing turbulent times but we always want to be known as a church that constantly, continually rejects the godless idols of our age in trust of our Savior, who we demonstrate in our lives and in our conversations, he will come again. And it may be sooner than later. We can be that church. We should be that church that is a pattern for others to follow, not because of the great buildings and the programs, but because who we are as believers demonstrating the life of Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous message we have that Paul penned to these faithful believers in Thessalonica. Lord, they just responded to the gospel. They trusted you. They turned their backs on idols and idolatrous worship because they heard the truth. They, they submitted themselves as the power of the Holy Spirit was working in their lives. They demonstrated it in their, their work, their labor, and their steadfastness and their hope. And they eagerly were waiting for your return. Their reputation preceded them for the changed lives that you generated in each and every one of them. May that be true of us here at Countryside, here in this class, throughout all those who are converted in Jesus Christ, who are part of that elect, may we demonstrate that faithfulness, exude that Christ-likeness in the way we talk and live and interact. And may the reports of this church be reflected of the same type of report that came from that church in that first century. We thank you for this word, for its timelessness, for its impact, for the truth. May it bear fruit in all of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.